if you want me to speak about the caste consciousness, I would say that uh, uh, th- 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 this is something which was always a part of our conversation in the sense in our homes as well. And, and let me make this clear at the very outset, the, the sort of narrative which you see in the Western media that uh, the Hindu scriptures or the Hindu spiritual understanding as anti-Dalit, uh, this has been a product of uh, a colonial mindset in the sense that they're furthering propaganda as well. I can tell you with uh, all the authority uh, that I have that, uh, in fact, the Dalit Hindus or the lower caste Hindus are more Hindu than the upper caste Hindus. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhang Shukla talks with Guru Prakash, law professor at Patna University in Bihar, India, and advisor to the Dalit Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry. Suhang and Guru have a wide-ranging frank discussion about the origins and solutions to caste discrimination, Western narratives about Hinduism and caste, and much more. Guru Prakash is an assistant professor of law at Patna University in India. He earned his Bachelor of Laws at the National Law Institute in Bhopal, India. He then went on to earn a Master's in Laws with a dual specialization in human rights and criminal law from the National Law Institute in New Delhi and a PhD in Law at the University of Delhi, where he focused his research on Article 370 of the Indian Constitution. Guru is also a visiting fellow at the New Delhi-based think tank, India Foundation, He writes on a broad range of sociopolitical issues on numerous widely read media platforms. Guru is associated with and active with a number of organizations, including the Dalit Indian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, Human Rights Defense International, a New Delhi-based NGO working for the issues of human rights concerning the Indian diaspora, Rashtravadi Ambedkarwadi Mahasabha, and the newly formed Dalit and Adivasi Professor and Scholars Association and All India Dalit Youth Alliance. I was first introduced to Guru by my friend Phil Goldberg, who also recently appeared on our podcast. Phil had spent several weeks with Guru in India while on an India Foundation-sponsored tour for his book, American Veda, and described Guru as, quote, a terrific young man for whom I have great expectations. We understand why. His trajectory is inspiring, and the presentation of his ideas about upward mobility while maintaining social cohesion and assimilation for historically oppressed communities has been amazing, and we're really excited to have you here. So welcome, Guru. Thank you so much, Swag. All right. So I know there's a lot to discuss, and so I'm just going to take the pressure off of us right at the onset by saying that this, I hope, will be... Um, the first of many conversations. So there's no pressure to have to cover everything and anything. So the first thing I want to ask is just, how are you? Um, The government of India has managed uh, well a monumental task of carrying out probably the largest national shelter in place in the world. So how are things looking on the ground? Uh, See, in India, I think uh, our leadership was uh, one of the first who took the first step in terms of uh, imposing a national lockdown because considering the huge population and the geographical diversity, once a situation uh, like God forbid, if had it gone uh, beyond our control, it would have been a very difficult uh, thing to handle. But uh, thanks to the excellent uh, vision and imagination of our leadership, uh, 
he took this very difficult decision of imposing a national lockdown although it was uh, done abruptly because uh, we could not anticipate the sort of uh, exodus of migrant uh, workers who started right. from uh, delhi bombay and the majority of the industrial hubs of the country since i come from bihar and bihar has been one of the major suppliers of migrant labor across the country they work mm-hmm. in the manufacturing uh, sectors they work in the construction real estate and so on so that was one of the challenges but uh, by and large for a country of this scale and magnitude i thank the leadership for uh, imposing the lockdown at the right point of time and the quarantine centers and uh, uh, the, the the new age initiatives in fact uh, we have been reading a lot about the testing kits and we are now also a front runner in the production of ppe kits as well so i think in the due course uh, i believe because india as they say it's the bhumi of uh, tapasvis so ye right. ye tapasviyon ki bhumi hai as we say and uh, our age old civilizational lifestyle as well the, the the sort of immunity system which we have the sort of tropical climate which we have coupled with the government initiative and uh, their uh, brilliant uh, bureaucratic intervention as well i think i am hopeful and i am optimistic and not only in the domestic terms suhag i would also like to uh, tell you about the international efforts because our prime minister had that sark meeting as well uh, right. the, the the interventions in the g20 meet as well and uh, the hydro hydrochloro hcy right i know i get a, it's a mouthful and i just know that it has a really bitter taste and i hated taking it whenever <laughs> i came to india <laughs> we supplied hydroxy chloroquine <laughs> yeah. there you go you got it <laughs> two lawyers trying to um, spout out some medical terms but yes <laughs> and, uh, like we, as we speak the government of india is also undertaking a massive vande bharat bharat program of uh, bringing out the diaspora who are stuck in different parts of the world so yes we see a lot of promise we see a lot of hope we see a lot of optimism and uh, probably uh, in the near uh, future we'll uh, hear some good news that's that's great to hear and you know it it's no nothing short of a miracle to get a democracy um where people are used to their their freedom i mean we're seeing that here in the united states um in terms of just getting people to stay in place and know that what sacrifices that they're making on their own are really not just about keeping them safe but keeping others and and to your point about um some of our traditional systems here at HAF we'd have we've had a number of webinars on ayurveda and immunity building or yoga and um the management of stress so i can see where if those practices or at least that ethos is already kind of ingrained um that it's only going to bolster um whatever um efforts so i want to um you know i know a little bit about you but you know tell us a little bit about yourself where did you grow up um what role models did you have growing up and how did they influence your current trajectory um or if at all and and in terms of the pursuing of of law not just in a bachelor's but a master's and a phd <laughs> uh so yeah we were born in a lower middle class family and uh, my father was in the uh, initially he started as a uh, as an officer in the bank but then eventually he also delved into public life and then he went on to become uh, a member of the union cabinet as well when atal bihari vajpayee ji was the prime minister of the country and okay. we come from uh, bihar uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, 
it it is in the eastern side of the country and uh, probably one of the only states with the uh, boost of having uh, three critical uh, hotspots of important religions of the world and the remains of the world's oldest university as well so when we speak of buddhism we have uh, bodhgaya the place right. of enlightenment when we talk of sikhism it's the birthplace of guru gobind singh and mm. it is also the birthplace of vardhaman mahavir the founder of jainism as well so three critical hotspots of uh, the very three important religions uh, yes. not only in india but they spread across the world and the world's oldest uh, university nalanda university it was established like uh, hundreds of years uh, uh before your harvard and oxfords were even invented <laughs> exactly yes <laughs> so the uh, initial days uh, were like this my uh, school education happened in uh, the capital city of bihar which is patna and then uh, from uh, there we uh, went on to study law in uh, national law institute university bhopal uh so this if you are very in the sense uh, if you want me to speak about the caste consciousness i would say that uh, uh, th- th- this is something which was always a part of our conversation in the sense mm-hmm. in our homes as well but since we were uh, spiritually inclined and uh, and and let me make this clear at the very outset the, the sort of narrative which you see in the western media that uh, the hindu scriptures or the hindu spiritual understanding as anti dalit uh this has been a product of uh, a colonial mindset and uh, in the sense that they're furthering propaganda as well i can tell you with uh, all the authority uh, that i have that uh, in fact the dalit hindus or the lower caste hindus are more hindu than the upper caste hindus <laughs> right uh, in the sense the observance of uh, the fast and mm-hmm. uh, you know a very important festival chhat festival where we, mm-hmm. we worship our sun gods in yeah. fact uh, th- this is uh, one of the most important festival of the eastern part of the country so mm-hmm. a great number of dalit and especially dalit women they celebrate mm-hmm. uh, this festival where they and it's a very difficult uh, fast which uh, the person had to undergo it's a, uh-huh. it's almost two and a half day fast where you go without water so oh, it, 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 it's it's yeah, wow. it's a matter of faith and the the, yes. the amount of faith which you have in the spiritual uh, entity which is up there that that that's immense so as growing up uh, we did not see us as uh, you were not fed this uh, anti hindu or anti uh, spiritual images but as we went on to our colleges and we started reading some literature this uh, sort of uh, indoctrination efforts on mm-hmm. uh, especially from the western bloc especially from the sort of i would say the leftist uh islamist uh, uh, influence on the academic it, it it was huge back in the college in fact uh, i i was very fortunate enough to be in one of the premier institution of the country and uh, one of the in our first years of our college we were not able to realize or make sense of it but uh, eventually after uh, our graduation we realized that all the scst students they were put in a dormitory and all these students from the upper caste they were put in a separate room accommodation so mm. back then we were not able to realize this but uh, as we grew up as our consciousness uh, become uh, more mature we sort of realized uh, that this is a very systemic and this is a very institutional problem which yeah. has been there in india and yeah. you cannot blame any political dispensation for this because even after seven decades of our independence and even before that uh, the conflict 
the cleavages, the concerns and the challenges that has arisen out of caste is immense. But the solution lies in conversations. The solution lies in sort of debates and discussion where we confront those challenges, where we confront those concerns and uh, work out with a solution-oriented approach in our mind. Because at the end of the day, we are part of the civilization, we are proudly part of the civilization, and we want to be a part of the national growth story of the country as well, as we progress. There is no division assets, there is no, there, there are efforts made, and there right. will be efforts made. Uh, and that is the reason people like me, we have come out in the open, uh, even with a label on our uh, head that, uh, and we, and I, I'll tell you, Suhak, that we suffer a lot as well. Because uh, let's say I'm a Dalit and uh, today I start speaking uh, that I am being uh, discriminated. I am, uh, they're uh, marginalizing me in all the spaces. The media will pick me up like this. If I start mm-hmm. speaking against my religion, if I start speaking against my country, because they're looking for spices. Right. If I say, no, no, the Dalits are also in danger in this country. But that is not true at all. And mm-hmm. that is my firm conviction. Right. And people who, whosoever say, I mean, they, they, they can have their own reasons, but they are saying this with a sort of uh, massive propaganda and uh, agenda on their minds. Right. So, you know, you've rightly said that this topic brings out both passion and polarization. And, you know, we faced a deluge of both of these things, passion and polarization, perhaps naively, you know, most of us at at HAF are second generation born and raised in the United States. And we, we recognized, you know, as Hindus, that this is the elephant in the room. And so we released a report uh, called Hinduism, Not Cast in Caste, Seeking an End to Caste-Based Discrimination back in 2011. And in it, as you know, we sought to acknowledge first that caste-based discrimination is a serious social problem across all religious communities, not only in India, but throughout South Asia, that it's outlawed in most of these countries, and that programs have been established to provide kind of historical compensation to those communities um, that were depressed. And um, one of the main purposes was also to uh, clarify, given the misconflation of the Hindu tradition, um, that caste-based discrimination is a direct violation of the most profound and fundamental Hindu teachings about diversity being manifest equally in every being. So you have, in this context, what you have said, and I, and I think that um, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into this, is that you Self have self-described as someone who is both a beneficiary of government programs designed to uplift and empower members of historically depressed classes, as well as a victim of caste-based discrimination. So you've you've given us a, a, a little bit of your own experience, say at, at university, where you don't even see it, people are, I don't know if it's conscious or unconscious, I think it's probably a combination of both, where that social um, caste-based discrimination um, exists. But maybe there's other examples. And what do you mean by being a beneficiary of government programs? Historical justice or historical compensation, as uh, they usually refer uh, the affirmative action policies, which is uh, in our constitution, that is to ensure adequate amount of representation of people who have been marginalized, people who have uh, been uh, socially, politically, and economically disadvantaged through ages. And uh, 
our leader, Dr. Baba Sahib Ambedkar, who was uh, not only a leader of the depressed classes, as the popular media shows uh, him to be, he spoke about the rights of the women as well in the Hindu board bill, as uh, it is seen. And it was he was opposed tooth and nail by Jawaharlal Nehru as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So he made this provision to ensure that uh, people from uh, the socially disadvantaged communities, they get some sort of preferential treatment in the government-sponsored education and employment. Mm-hmm. So some quota, as per the population, which was done back in uh, a caste census, a socio-economic caste census, uh, was done in 1931. So roughly around 16% of the population was found to be people from the Dalit community, people from the scheduled caste uh, sections. So 15% of the jobs in the government, they were reserved for the scheduled caste and 7.5% for the scheduled tribes. And then uh, during the 90s came the reservation for the other backward classes as well, which I find politically uh, motivated. And uh, seven decades of uh, affirmative action has uh, helped a lot. I would not uh, take that line that it has served its purpose. A lot needs to be done. But uh, people like me, people like us uh, have emerged as a beneficiary of this reservation system. And when I say that, I say that uh, with my belief in this constitutional commitment to uplift uh, us marginalized. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because uh, whenever I debate in favor of reservation in a television debate or uh, in a seminar, so, so this is something which I find very interesting. So suppose there is a a uh, debater on the other side uh, of the aisle and uh, he's a Brahmin, he or she's a Brahmin. So I usually make this statement that you have been exposed to book, literature, education for 10 generation. I have been exposed to books and uh, literature for uh, the second generation. So mm-hmm. how are we going to equate both of us? When the starting line on the race is different, then how do you speak of merit? So, so, so that is something which uh, we are... Uh, sort of now realizing and the rest of the society is also becoming very compassionate and very empathetic uh, towards this concern of us. So when I say I'm a beneficiary, I've benefited from the system, uh, the government, uh, national law university, be it in Bhopal or my present uh, uh, job at the university as well. Uh, it was possible. It was a considerable role played by the reservation policy of the government. But there are now voices of reforms in the reservation system as well. Hmm. Uh, Because uh, a huge section of uh, the marginalized, they have been left behind. Mm -hmm. And how do the fruits of reservation uh, uh, might reach them? And uh, that that is something which is a cause of concern today. And there is a huge debate happening in India on uh, what should be the next stage of reservation? What Hmm. should be the reforms in the reservation and that, that that's a very critical debate in fact the supreme court of india last week came out with this decision which advocated for uh, a sort of revision in the list of uh, sort of including creamy layer concept which is already there in the obc reservation uh, quotas to be introduced uh-huh. in the scst as well and uh, I, I am not taking a stand on that but i think uh, the time is appropriate to have a debate on that issue because for how long uh, let's say my family is only going to corner the benefits of the reservation. There are other, and I know them. I think, uh, in, in fact, we have written papers urging the government of India to come out with a white paper on reservation policies. The number of people who have benefited from it, the number of people who have not benefited from it, and uh, 
this concerns me because uh, the voice of reforms must come from within the community mm-hmm. this is very important let's say uh, miss shukla giving me this lesson no no you should reform you should bring the reform in this reservation that would be unacceptable but someone from us it, it it is dangerous because we might be villainized within our community no no see look at him what is he doing he is going to demolish he has become a sort of messenger of those people so agreed but these are the challenges which we always anticipated before we entered the public life but the voice of reform is a critical thing and it's a much needed step now but at the same time i would also say that there are sectors in our country which is still underrepresented or they don't they they, they lack representation and i use this term social diversity very frequently these days because how do you ensure social diversity in the decision making positions of the institutions or the structures of power mm-hmm. because uh, till now there has been only one chief justice of india from dalit kamala krishnan and there has been no dalit to my knowledge uh, who has become a cabinet secretary of the government of india or the foreign secretary of the government of india which is one of the top most uh, position in the bureaucracy as well and the situation is similarly discouraging in uh, academic spheres as well the number of professors the number of vice chancellors and so on but this is something which is systemic this is something which has uh, been there since the last seven decades and do not uh, blaming or attributing this to a certain political party will not serve its purpose but the intellectual leaders the public faces of the community must come forward and have a level headed conversation on this issue so that there is a constructive and uh, a solution oriented approach that comes forward so you know i what i find interesting because uh there are i think parallels um i don't want to make complete parallels um between um say the movement for civil rights here in the united states uh because i don't think that the unique history of america and um the role of of slavery in this country and and the downstream effect and and the very destructive effect it it has had on race relations i i think that's very different from what we have in india in terms of dalits and and the movements um for you know realizing the pro- the constitutional promise of equality but would you say though i i completely hear you on the need for voices from within the community but on the one hand we're talking about trying to bring social cohesion is there space for people of all castes backgrounds whether they're forward backward i i really don't like that terminology but it is what we have um to work together right because uh you know and i don't want to use something as lofty as caste free society i i think we're maybe hundreds of years away from that but uh because there are there are other dynamics which i want to get into later but is there is there that opportunity in the same way that people in the united states you had people from all different races coming together to fight for equality um is there is there a place for that and what would that look like um in terms of pulling in uh people and bringing in even the diversity in the quest for equality yeah i i think uh, this is a very interesting question and in fact we 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 suffer uh, from this phenomena a lot that since 2014 uh, the dalits of this country they are in grave danger but i would like to admit that uh, it is just a false agenda 
it is just a propaganda of a very few section of elites who have uh, gone ahead and just furthering their uh, political uh, sort of agenda and i'll tell you something the prime minister himself he comes from a socially disadvantaged community if you ask me in the constitutional terms he comes from the other backward classes section and we are proud of this fact if you look at this power pyramid and this is the power pyramid and the power is traveling from upwards to downwards so the upper layer could be the upper caste the middle layer could be the intermediary caste and the down uh, the bottommost layer could be the dalits so the power is traveling and it has gone to the intermediary caste and it is going to go deep down further and this is what i call penetrative democracy this is what i call the deep down democracy effect because as you know we are one of the most uh, we, we we are celebrating in fact uh, 70 years of our uh, constitutional democracy and we are completely proud of it so i really find it very disturbing when uh, your uh, section uh, of the western media be it washington post be it the new york times they they, they say that uh, and, uh, the, the dalits are in danger the muslims are in danger that these are some structural issues which has remained from the last seven decades and uh, if you look at the data as well if you look at the data which is uh, published by the national crime reports bureau of the ministry of home affairs uh, the, the, that will tell you a lot in fact mm-hmm. uh, uh, you see now the number of uh, elected representatives in the parliament the member of parliament from uh, the member of parliament from the dalit community they are now the highest mm-hmm. uh, across uh, the you know this is the 17th lok sabha and across the 17 lok sabha the highest number of uh, scheduled caste uh, mp are from the bjp and in terms of representation in the cabinet and the council of ministers as well there are people the president of india ramnath kovind himself is a dalit hmm. so there, there is no question of uh, Uh, the, the the discrimination talk which is happening like i said before and i maintain that there are some structural issues there are some systemic and institutional issues which remain but efforts are being made and the conversations are now happening on uh, how to uh, let's say evolve a more equitable and uh, a sort of more sustainable society on these terms so let me ask you this um what place do you think does the phrase poverty as an equalizer have a place in this conversation and i think back to my recent visit to india um my husband asim runs this uh, program in partnership with a government hospital in amdabad gujarat and so this is a free hospital people from all different backgrounds come there and um the there was a woman who does all the cleaning of of the wards of the bathrooms and everything like that and at some point she keyed in on my last name and said oh i'm a shukla too so you know that which to me you know it was an interesting phenomenon but here is someone who comes from a forward caste or upper caste um who's you know working hard in something where in the western media you would get this very um kind of uh, black and white uh, description of oh these types of jobs the jobs that are like manual labor and things like that this is where lower castes are relegated to upper castes have all the you know um high paying and more influential jobs what i'm hearing from that you're saying is that is still largely true but in this case where maybe illiteracy or um lack of access to education or poverty what's the place of those things in terms of 
the story of just kind of upward mobility for everyone? Mm, very interesting. And uh, I would like to take you back to one of the initiative, one of the landmark initiative which the Honorable Prime Minister of India took of mm -hmm. giving a reservation to the economically backward section within the upper caste as well. Hmm. So, okay. we, in Hindi, like we say, Garib Savarno Koarakshan. People from economically challenged people from the upper caste. And in fact, that was one of the great steps because initially what used to happen that there was a sort of stigma associated with reservation. Right. Uh, people used to say that, oh, you are coming from reserve category. You have had a very easy access. Your mm -hmm. journey has been very smooth. So now sort of uh, it's a blessing in disguise for us. So now we can also say that also you are, you are also from reserve category. So right. that social stigma has ended substantially with this. And oh. undoubtedly, people from poor people are there regardless of their social origin. There are a huge number of uh, poor people from across the section. And these are some uh, structural inequalities that has existed. But I still say that uh, obviously there is no data as such. There are some studies which has been done in the 90s with say on uh, four or five indicators, access to good education, access to sa sanitation, access to health. Dalits mm -hmm. considerably are the substantial portion of uh, the poorest of the poor. But uh, also the people from the upper caste, uh, they also face the brunt of uh, uh, being at the margins and being at the fringes. So I'm happy that you raised this question. And with this reservation for the upper caste economically uh, poor people, this uh, equality and uh, this uh, opportunity will come for all, hopefully. Hmm. Okay. Well, and one of the things, you know, we, we talked, or you mentioned rather, um, merit. And, and when you've spoken about merit on some of the talks that I've watched, you talk about both mentorship and networking as being kind of essentially, you know, essential ingredients to building merit. So, you know, to this end, you have been involved in, in a couple of um, organizations and movements, I would say, um, that are coming from the Dalit community, uh, whether it's the Dalit Indian Chamber of Commerce and Industry or the newly formed Dalit and Adivasi Professor and Scholars Association and the All India Dalit Youth Alliance. So can you tell us a little bit about what these endeavors are and um, what you know, what are they achieving or what do they seek to achieve? Yeah, uh, so uh, this one initiative which has been very close to my heart is Dalit Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry. It was started uh, way back in 2005 uh, with a gentleman uh, called Mr. Milind Kamble, know him uh, well. himself uh, uh, Dalit from Maharashtra. And uh, in the 15 years of its existence, Suhag uh, You'll find it very difficult to believe that uh, DICCI, we call it DICI, Dalit Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, they have a network of more than 5,000 entrepreneurs coming from the SCNST categories. Wow. And uh, on the 10th anniversary in 2005, uh, which happened in uh, Vigyan Bhavan, New Delhi, which the Prime Minister was there at the celebration, he was also very encouraged to look at the people from these uh, socially deprived uh, segment uh, wearing suit, boot and ties and sitting there proudly. Dalit Indian Chamber of Commerce and Industry has played a great role in galvanizing the youngsters from the Dalit community to 
to think beyond the conventional contours of the constitutional commitment of affirmative action. In the sense, uh, previously, what used to happen that, uh, oh, we have reservation, we'll apply for government jobs and uh, we'll go ahead and uh, do it. There was no entrepreneurial instincts within these communities. And again, this is a very interesting angle to it. I'll tell you something. So the occupation of leather-related occupation, Uh it uh, traditionally belonged to, it historically belonged to Dalits. Mm -hmm. The occupation of barber, the occupation of uh, uh, mutton as well, the jhatka mutton as well. In fact, uh, there is a growing movement of jhatka certification. You'll be uh, like, there's a very interesting uh, movement that has started, like globally, which we have uh, halal certification of uh, uh, meat. Now there is a jhatka certification movement that is going on because a khatik caste or a khatik community, primarily in the northern India, their traditional occupation was meat cutting and uh, cultivating uh, of uh, these uh, animals and so on. But this was taken by the Islamic invaders in uh, the course. Mm-hmm. So there is a great movement of Jhatka certification which uh, has now started. And uh, in fact, uh, that, that, that I'll like to speak uh, in, the, in, in furtherance of our conversation when we speak of the perceived Dalit-Muslim alliance. Yes. But let me focus on say. the Dalit Indian. let me focus on this Dalit Indian chambers of commerce and industry so yes like I said around 5,000 more than 5,000 entrepreneurs coming from SC and ST categories and it has boosted our uh, confidence in the system as well the Honorable Prime Minister came out with this excellent initiative of Stand Up India scheme Uh and uh, it's it's a very interesting uh, initiative where uh, so there are around uh, 1.25 lakh public sector bank branches across the length and breadth of the country. And the mandate of this scheme was to cultivate entrepreneurs from two categories. One was women, uh, regardless of the social origin. And uh, another one was either SC or ST Mm -hmm. to give uh, initial finance, to give the handhold support and uh, so on. So the idea was to create micro and small entrepreneurs at sub-regional levels from these categories. And it's still being done. And it's, 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 it's one of the greatest initiative, I would say, because with the liberalization, privatization and globalization that has been happening globally and in the domestic sense as well, the role of state or the role of government will gradually decrease. But now mm-hmm. with this COVID pandemic, I think the debate has taken a different turn. Right. State, I think all of the, the, the focus is on the state. But yeah, like I said, so opportunities now beyond the government sector, mm-hmm. opportunities now beyond the state must be uh, sought after by the Dalit community youngsters and they are uh, looking forward to it. I can now see, I can give you names of successful Dalit women entrepreneurs who are working in the handloom sector, who are working in the textile sector and so on. So this mm-hmm. particular initiative is very close to my heart given a sense of uh, imagination to the Dalit youngsters of the country that mm-hmm. we can also go beyond the conventional contours of constitution. We can also go beyond the reservation and build something which is going to be our own. And through that, we are going to employ people and be a part of the national growth story. So DICCI, obviously one. And uh, another initiative, uh, All India Dalit Youth Alliance and uh, the Dalit Adivasi Professors and Scholars Association which mm-hmm. we started this year only one was the Dalit Youth Alliance was started on Ambedkar Jayanti this month and mm-hmm. the Dalit Adivasi Professors and Scholars Association was started last month. It was the birth anniversary of Kanchi Ramji. 
who was one of the foremost uh, political thinker and political activist who created the Bahujan movement, the Bahujan Samaj Party and so on. And another couple of initiatives which we started this year itself, one was uh, DAPSA, Dalit Adivasi Professors Scholars Association, which we started last month uh, in the month of March, on 15th of March, to be precise, which was Kanshi Ramji's birth anniversary. Kanshi Ramji is one of the most revered figure in the Dalit imagination. And he initiated the Bahujan movement, uh, the Bahujan Samaj Party, which gave the country the first uh, Dalit chief minister, Mayavati, was a product of Kashi Ramji's intellect and his imagination only. Mm. And uh, we started okay. this movement uh, in March. And the, another interesting movement uh, which started uh, uh, on Ambedkar's uh, birth anniversary, that was 14th April, was All India Dalit Youth Alliance. So the mm. idea behind uh, these two movements was to sort of galvanize the youngsters, academics, scholars from the spe- specifically from the Dalit community only. Uh, so the, the idea behind uh, these two initiatives was to have youngsters on one platform, have scholars on one platform to sort of make a connection because this is mm-hmm. where we lack. And uh, there is a very interesting book which is called Caste as a Social Capital. And uh, one of the mm-hmm. former professor of finance at the Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore, uh, Dr. R. Vaidyanathan, he has written this book that how caste acts as a social network in the sense, uh, and he has given this example, a very interesting example, which you'll find uh, amazing. Uh, the Palanpur Jains, uh, uh-huh. it's a community in uh, Rajasthan, and how they control over 80% of the global trade on diamond, be it manufacturing, be it designing, be it cutting, so on and so forth. Right. And how caste plays a sort of instrumental role. It, it plays a very important role in giving you the sort of access to credit, the access to market, the access to workforce, skilling and so on. So the idea behind these right. uh, two movement is to form a loosely connected network of individuals from the Dalit community who can come on a platform. Uh, let's say, in, 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 because this is now an offline world, uh, online world. So let's say in a WhatsApp uh, group. Uh, in fact, uh, I can tell you this because uh, this is one of the most active initiative, the All India Dalit Youth Alliance. Whenever we see on Twitter any incident of atrocity which is happening, now, since mm-hmm. we have uh, our people across 20 states of the country, let's say any incident of atrocity is happening in Andhra Pradesh. We get in touch with our volunteers in Andhra Pradesh and we prepare a sort of representation and app and submit it to the National Commission of Scheduled Caste. If there is a Dalit woman, then we submit it to the National Commission of Women and so on and so forth. So the idea of togetherness, the idea of networking, our community is still lagging behind in realizing the potential of this. So... Through Dalit Adivasi Professors Scholars Association, through All India Dalit Youth Alliance, the idea is to bring together people from this community and make them realize the power of togetherness, the power of uh, networking. Yeah. Okay, those are some great um, initiatives, and we'll look forward to maybe meeting some of the people that are active uh, so that we can just learn about their on-ground experiences. So I want to pivot a little bit. You know, we talked about the new paradigm that is one of aspirations and assertion of representation and inclusion. So I want to now pivot to the second and, and perhaps 
kind of the prevailing and definitely more vocal Dalit perspective. And um, that is one of a paradigm of, as you've described, aggression and accommodativeness. So, you know, in some of your talks, when you describe caste, uh, you talk about it as being multi-layered, uh, being sociological, economical, and political. But the one word that you don't bring up in this is religious, um, which might come as a shock or as an eye-opener to most Westerners because Hinduism and caste are presented as uniquely and intrinsically linked, be it in public school textbooks um, and how India and Hinduism are taught to reports in mainstream media about India and Hindus. And it, as you have rightly pointed out, it's usually in a framework of tension, atrocities, and violence. So tell me a little bit more about this perspective and whether you feel that it's served the cause of equality, inclusion, and social cohesion. Uh, very, very, very interesting that you brought this issue. And in fact, uh, we sort of uh, struggle with this question on a daily basis on uh, which mm -hmm. strand of thought is more acceptable. There is definitely one of aggression and assertion and another one uh, which talks of aspiration and being accommodative in the sense and uh, all the voices are equally important because the voices are coming from the community. But my concern is when the Western media or the narrative builders or the discourse makers of the country and the world, they focus their energy only on the aggression bit of it. They don't tell you the stories of Melinda Kamle. They don't tell you the stories of Tina Dabi, who's, uh, who was ranked one in, the, in probably one of the world's toughest examination, the UPSC. She was a Dalit girl. Hmm. They won't tell you the story of Hima Das, who went on to win a medal in Olympics. She was a Dalit as well. They will not tell you the story of Kalpana Saroj, who was a Dalit woman, once contemplated suicide, but then uh, uh, through her struggle, through facing challenges, became one of the foremost face in uh, the world of business today in Maharashtra. So my concern is that when the media, when the intelligentsia, with this propaganda, with this divisive agenda in their mind, they only sort of cherry-pick uh, the negative stories and they don't pick up the stories which are part of the society, which is happening now. Right. In the sense, uh, like you uh, rightly said, the civilization fault line, which uh, is, uh, in fact, our, uh, the, the caste issue that, that, that dominates the discourse these days, and rightly so, because uh, I have always maintained that caste is definitely a problem and uh, a fuel that intensifies this uh, uh, cleavage, the atrocities which is happening. But we are moving in the right direction. We are taking steps in the right direction because uh, efforts are being made and not only today. Efforts were being made since the days of Rajara Mohan Roy, Jyotiba Phule, uh, Savitri Bai Phule, Baba Saibam Bedkar, Babu Chakjivan Ram, and so on. Because these leaders who we today revere, they came from this community, but they are very much uh, heritage of the country as their heritage of the Dalit community. So this question of, uh, because the, the, the breaking India forces, which we say, and uh, they use caste as one of the potent weapon, and I would not shy away from uh, sharing this information with you that there are today a lot of international forces 
that are hell bent on making caste as an international issue they are sort of uh, uh, efforts to uh, uh, get a convention in the united nations against caste as uh, equating it to race in the united states so these are the breaking mm-hmm. india forces which uh, have uh, their uh, political uh, agenda in their minds but i like i'm always uh, reiterating myself that caste is definitely an issue but like uh, we usually do if there is a family dispute we solve it within the four walls of our home we solve it within mm. the four walls of our uh, our parents our brothers and sisters we don't go out uh, in the field and shout about it so there is an issue and we are completely capable of resolving this issue you look at sant ravidas you look at sant kabir das you look at the authorship of the most important foundational documents of our religion who was the author of right. mahabharat who was the author of ramayana who was the author of the constitution of india what caste was ved vyasa what caste was uh, right. valmiki what caste was uh, baba saheb ambedkar they came from the socially marginalized communities so this heritage this civilization equally belongs to us as to the rest of the society and breaking this creating uh, the sort of tensions in the name of caste has been a part of politics of a certain section for which we cannot blame them because they also need to survive they also need a source of employment and uh, uh, political uh, patronage so th- this this sort of churning will uh, keep going on and this uh, strands of thought one strand that represent aggression and assertion and another strand that represent aspiration that is always going to be there but people like us who are working in this space uh, our only concern is that both the stories stories of aspiration and stories of assertion must be promoted and must be brought uh, to the attention of the national as well as the global media think that one that's very generous of you um in terms uh, so of some I- of the motivations <laughs> um so what i found interesting um you know within this kind of paradigm of aggression um or at least in the activists that that have uh used this kind of narrative as their as their primary um ideology i suppose what we're seeing not just in the uh, not just in india but also in the united states um a dalit muslim alliance and this comes up very often where there have been protests against the abrogation of article 370 um the citizenship amendment act um even though to a lesser extent with the ram temple verdict so i want to ask you is there a historical basis for this on the one hand you know we do know that uh you know caste practices and caste identities are something that um are across the board um a part of all faith communities in india but this particular alliance is there a historical basis for a dalit muslim alliance and does it make sense on these particular issues specifically the abrogation of 370 and caa at least uh thank you so much for bringing this question because uh, this again is very close to my heart and uh, look at it you have a phd on one of those things right so <laughs> <laughs> i'm asking the right person <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah uh, this alliance the dalit muslim alliance or they often also use jai bheem and jai meem so this is completely imaginary fictional and has no future at all 
I'll give you one of the example. In the last uh, elections of Uttar Pradesh, which is the largest province of the country, this party, Bhujan Samaj Party, tried this experiment of uh, Dalit Muslim Alliance and uh, she gave uh, party tickets to more than 90 Muslims to contest on the BSP symbol. 90% of them, you'll be surprised to know, they lost their deposit. They lost the election massively. So it has no political takers that was proven on that day. And as far as the history is concerned, I'll uh, tell you one of the very interesting anecdotes which I read and uh, I'll share it with you as well. And this is something which is written by Ambedkar himself, that this is the Battle of Plassey when uh, Sirajuddola was about to attack uh, uh, the region. The British forces were advised to employ soldiers from the Dalit communities. So when the uh, Britishers uh, sort of employed uh, uh, the Paswans and they told them you be at the first line of defense. So when the forces of Sirajudola came and they saw a lot of pigs on the, as a first line of defense. So in fact, because pig is considered Napak in their religion. So this Dalit Muslim alliance has no water at all. There, there is no, uh, because it's, it's completely imaginary. There is no uh, grounding of uh, this alliance. And in fact, one of the major proponents of this alliance, Mr. Asaduddin Ovaisi, he was about to do a public rally in Bihar with one of the uh, Dalit leaders of Bihar, Mr. Jitan Ram Manji. Mr. Jitan Ram Manji declined this uh, offer because he realizes that there is mm. no uh, political uh, view, that there are no political takers of this. So, so that is something which is completely an imagination. It's a figment of imagination of a section of our intelligentsia and uh, nothing more than that. And especially when you talk of the Citizenship Amendment Act, I would recommend uh, people who are interested in uh, reading and researching about this. The first law minister of Pakistan was a Dalit, Jogendra Nath mm. Mandal. And uh, he initially was under the influence of uh, the potential behind Dalit Muslim Alliance. He went on to become the law minister of Pakistan probably under this false belief given by the then rulers of Pakistan that uh, will treat your people with respect. But soon, in, in fact, uh, soon after a couple of months, he realized the amount of atrocities that were being committed on Dalits by the Islamic forces. And he, Mr. Jogendra right. Nath Mandal, in his 48 pages letter of resignation, has mentioned about the barbaric, brutal and the inhuman atrocities that were committed on Dalits. And he ran away from... Uh, East Pakistan and uh, came back to India and the rest of his life was spent in, uh, uh, he, he was lonely in the last days of his life because of this decision that he made. So I recommend everyone to read this letter of uh, resignation by Mr. Jokendranath Mandal, who was the first law minister of uh, Pakistan. Whoever sort of uh, glamorizes this concept of uh, Dalit Muslim Alliance. And as far as the Citizenship Amendment Act is concerned, let me tell you that the biggest beneficiaries of this is going to be the Dalit community itself. Because people That's who are right. in Pakistan, at the time of partition, people who had the means, they migrated. People who had the power, people who had the resources, they migrated. But it is a recorded uh, anecdote that uh, the leadership of the then Pakistan, they said that if the Dalits go, who are going to clean up toilets? 
this sort of uh, imagery was created this sort of perception was created and uh, the majority of dalits were left behind you look at the community you look at the caste stratification of people who are in pakistan today or people who are in bangladesh today uh, they did they, they the, a considerable amount of them have been sacrificed as well they have become a product of religious persecution but people who are left behind are majorly coming from the socially disadvantaged communities of holi samaj bhil samaj and so on and so forth so this entire debate of caa or anything being anti dalit anti muslim and putting dalits and muslim in the same bracket is imaginary is fictional and has no relationship with reality whatsoever and and even on on article 370 uh, my understanding is that some of the you know affirmative action programs that we talked about um from the central government that the benefits of those things were not extended to dalit communities in in kashmir is is that accurate correct correct yeah uh, thanks for pointing it out so because of article 370 the erstwhile article 370 a lot of autonomy was given to the state government of jammu and kashmir and uh, in furtherance of their agenda in furtherance of their shakedown i would say they only had uh, people from relevant uh, section at the position of power and privileges and when the rest of the country when the dalit brethren from the rest of the country were enjoying the fruits of reservation the dalits of the jammu and kashmir were massively left behind in fact uh, reservation mm. came at a very later stage as far as i remember around 1976 with an executive order and till now there was no political reservation for scheduled tribes in fact there are a huge number of uh, scheduled tribe uh, uh, people in the ladakh region of jammu and kashmir so now with ladakh being mm-hmm. a separate autonomous region probably some amount of justice will be done but article 370 the removal of article 370 has done a great amount of service to the cause of uh, to the cause of the marginalized and uh, now probably they'll have uh, more respect more dignity and get preferential treatment in the government sponsored education and environment hmm so we've talked for a long time so i'm going to this is going to be my last set of questions because i know we are going to have more uh conversations because i want to actually once i review this uh conversation that we've had you've mentioned a lot of names of of dalit uh heroes who are really um you know led some inspirational lives and their messages are important for not just the hindu tradition but indian society as a whole so my last kind of set of questions uh is around the fact that caste does tend to be a defining feature of hinduism at least in the understanding amongst americans at large even though it's something that's seen across all faith communities in india and um and even though hinduism has expanded uh to non-indians right where you have hindus now who are of uh european descent african american descent latino um and you know what would their caste be if it was a defining uh feature of the tradition so our view at haf is uh and has been that caste based discrimination and even this notion of a hierarchical birth based caste is not intrinsic to uh the core hindu teachings um 
and nor is, or, or rather, that caste-based discrimination is a violation of some of the core precepts in the tradition, and that there is a solution that lies within the Hindu tradition. So I want to ask you, as someone who grew up with kind of the spiritual base, do you see a solution within the Hindu tradition? Um, and if so, what teachings do you find the most redeeming and, and liberating? What wisdom does our tradition offer in terms of inspiring change in attitudes and behaviors? Uh, I don't consider myself uh, as someone uh, who has a deep knowledge of uh, Hinduism, but uh, from my limited exposure and my limited understanding, I see in the course of my research that there were a lot of voices. In fact, one of the first Dalit women poet who was in Karnataka, she was Kallave. And uh, mm -hmm. she was part of this uh, movement by Basavanna, the Lingayat, the founder of the Lingayat movement. And she was right. spoke against uh, the internal uh, hierarchies and the sort of social prejudices that existed back then. And apart from Kallave, there have been... Uh, other important stories within the Hindu fold as well. Like I mentioned previously, the story of Kabir Das, the story of uh, Sant Ravidas, who have time and again realized that uh, these uh, division is not going to help further our cause, who have realized the damaging potentials of uh, these cleavages and have spoken time and again, again uh, time and again against. It. And, and that, that is very crucial and critical. So the solution lies, according to my uh, understanding, uh, at three different levels. One at the political level, in the sense, how do you ensure adequate representation at places which are still underrepresented? The second is at the social level, that how do you cultivate leadership uh, in the society? like through this initiative of DAPSA, through this initiative of All India Dalit Youth Alliance, what we are attempting to do is to create leadership at the regional and the sub-regional level where people can uh, speak with an open mind with a constructive and a solution-oriented uh, approach in their minds. And the third approach is also in terms of, uh, because uh, this uh, Kerala, uh, Kerala government came out with this interesting initiative of uh, reserving the position of priest for Dalits. So that was one mm -hmm. of the very progressive uh, uh, steps which the Kerala government undertook. But I'm sure there are uh, movements and there are spaces uh, across where uh, there is no government mandate, but there are priests from Dalit community. The Devdasi Sampradaya is there. And uh, I know of uh, uh, Chilkur Rangrajan uh, Swamiji who has started uh, carrying uh, Dalits uh, on his shoulder into the sanctum sanctorum of uh, the temples. Today, untouchability is not an issue. Today, the problem is the absence of adequate amount of representation. Once you ensure the adequate amount of representation, the change will the change is inevitable. Then, the the, the concern which I, which I uh, see in the Supreme Court of India. Because Supreme Court of India has been really brutal in the last couple of years when it comes to Dalit uh, empowerment because the attack on the SCST Prevention of Atrocities Act and now this uh, initiation of conversation around the uh, reforms in uh, reservation. 
Supreme Court is one such institution that has very little amount of social diversity. Like I said previously that there has been only one uh, Dalit uh, judge in the Supreme Court. So a place where uh, there is so little of empathy, how do you expect them to uh, have sort of concerns for the marginalites? So next uh, generation of reforms or the next generation of solutions to have lies in adequate amount of representation at places where we are still uh, sort of uh, underrepresented, be it media, be it think tanks, think tanks like uh, Hindu America Foundation as well, uh, be it uh, the judiciary. So th- th- there are many such places where we need adequate amount of representation and representation eventually will uh, solve the problem uh, to a great extent because conversations have started, the churning is started, and uh, this is the need of art. The need of the art is to have difficult conversation around uh, representation. And as far as Hinduism is concerned, I am too little uh, to comment upon it because, uh, like you say, it's Sanatan. And uh, it has its own internal mechanism to resolve issues and resolve challenges. Mm, reformers have come out time and again speaking against it. And uh, it will exist, it will flourish regardless of caste. that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate. Thanks again for listening.